Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome back to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering the legal side of crypto, NFTs, DAOs, and any other blockchain-related innovation. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Law of Code podcast. My guest today is Andrew Gordon. Andrew is a crypto tax attorney and CPA based in Chicago. He and his firm, Gordon Law Group, at Gordon Law LTD on Twitter, have focused on crypto tax since 2014. They've since prepared hundreds of crypto tax returns for retail investors, whales, celebrity clients, and NFT startups. Andrew also practices corporate law with a focus on blockchain, affiliate marketing, esports, and tech, and teaches a course on emerging technologies at Chicago Kent College of Law. I believe he also owns a Mutant 8. Is that true, Andrew? <laughs> that is correct. I do. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thanks for joining the podcast. Thrilled to have you here. I thought we could start with your Genesis block, where you were first introduced to Bitcoin. Sure. So personally, I've always been very interested in new technologies and you know, being a child, a teenager during the dot-com boom and seeing how that changed the world. I've always been keen to find new opportunities and new ways that technology can change the world. And in the early days of crypto, I think 2012 or so, I first personally began to learn about Bitcoin and the technology and became personally an investor. As a firm, however, it wasn't until 2014 that we got involved. And it's crazy saying 2014, right. now in 2023. But in 2014, we first as a firm got involved with one of our clients who was actually one of the co-founders of Ethereum. And he came to us and said, hey, I'm getting paid this magic internet money called Ethereum. How is it taxed? Is it taxed? What do I do? And that was our introduction into the space. And back then, there was little to no regulatory clarity on, is this even taxed? And things have certainly changed over the years with a lot more guidance. But that was how we first got involved. And so let's move on to tax. So when you think of tax reporting, and I think over the years, it's really changed. And there was a recent case in the US, the Jarrett case, where he essentially got his refund, but the court dismissed the case. So now, you know, next year, he might have to go through the same process all over again. And I believe that was involved with staking. What are the most commonly misreported transactions in crypto? Because there are so many things, as you alluded to earlier, that are happening. What do people typically miss or what are areas that you find you're flagging for clients most? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say airdrops and rewards are one of the most common. So it could be a hard fork. It could be just something that appeared in your wallet. But in some years, there were very significant airdrops and forks, depending on what you were holding. The IRS has settled that these situations are income. And yes, we, and we can talk a little bit about the Jarrett case as well. There are some efforts to change that, but if you receive something new of value, that is income to you. Um, so number one, I would say airdrops and forks. Relatedly would be crypto payments. I perform a service for someone or someone just gives me crypto. That is typically considered income and taxed at the fair market value at the time it was received. And so we've worked with a lot of contractors 
that had worked for crypto businesses in 2020 and received crypto over time. The value of that, as soon as it was received back then, is the amount of income, and that's what then generates the tax. Now, months or even a year later, the value may be much lower, but the tax is still owed based on the initial value at the time received. And so for some people, that's a very unfortunate result, but many overall just don't even know if that rule exists. Yeah, I can imagine. And I studied income tax in the US. And when you think, and this was during the time where airdrops were really common, or I think just before, and you can see a bit of a fundamental unfairness when it comes to that fair market value at the time of receipt, because the liquidity on some air potential airdrops and tokens could be so low that if there is a some one token or a couple like a couple thousand tokens trading somewhere, how do you assess the fair market value in that case? And that's the core of the issues in tax. We have general principles, um, but then applying them to the actual facts, to the technology that we have, it doesn't always play out properly. And so it's a great question. The IRS hasn't issued guidance on how do you define fair market value in the context of crypto? They have said that if there's an exchange price available and it's being traded, you can look to that. All right. But to your point, low liquidity, or you can only use, for instance, a foreign exchange to sell it, something like that. How do you value it? And there is no clear answer. We would typically try to look to any inputs available in exchange price, even if there was low liquidity. And in some cases, it makes sense to actually have a valuation or an appraisal because there, there can be discounts applied for lack of liquidity, lack of marketability, and so forth. In our role, we're not in a position to try to come up with that calculation. But if the fair market value can't be readily ascertained, it might make sense to use a method like that. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that idea because it's one area where you know the rules and you could understand how they might apply in a situation where there is very low liquidity and the prices are inflated and you're not selling, so you're not realizing the gain at that time. But you just don't really want to apply the rules because the way <laughs> that'll work is it'll be very expensive on your end. And oftentimes we've seen just over the past year, people were airdrop tokens that are worth much less now and likely even less than the tax bill that they would have received had they reported it. Absolutely. And sometimes they're receiving tokens that they don't want, right? Unsolicited airdrops, scams, things like that, or just they don't want them. But the tax code, although it hasn't spoken to crypto, has spoken to things like this in the past. For example, catching home run baseballs. That area of the tax code is actually fairly settled after the uh, Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire days. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> oh yeah. Too young. But so during that time, those baseballs used to be worth a ton of money, million dollar plus, right? And so what happens if you catch one? The answer is that's income to you at the fair market value. Doesn't matter if you never sold it, sell it. Doesn't matter if you sell it a year later and it's less, then you've got a capital loss. Um, what even happened was there were people that caught them and didn't want them. There was a baseball caught by a Cubs fan who then donated it to have it destroyed. Okay, so do you have an income event and then a subsequent donation? It actually took Congress intervening during this time to say the tax code sometimes has some very negative effects, and we need to step in here. If you catch a baseball and you absolutely don't want it and you throw it back, you abandon it, then you don't have income. 
but it wouldn't have been for someone in Congress stepping up saying, no, this isn't the way it should be. That otherwise, if you caught it and even threw it back, you had dominion and control. You had an income event. That's a very frustrating rule. And the way it can apply can often be unfair, but it doesn't really matter to the IRS. The rules are the rules and you're expected to follow them and conduct yourself accordingly. And you make a great point of people even just receiving airdrops that they don't want and they don't pl- they don't even want to go through the process of selling or anything, but technically you still have to report those. It is such a it's such a tough one. So now let's get into just some common transactions and how the ta- what the tax consequences are on that and People can find answers to these online, but I think it is good to just go through the basic ones and I'm curious to hear your thoughts as well. So when you buy crypto to crypto, I understand it's the barter transaction, but could you just explain from a tax perspective what the consequences are when you're, say, using your Bitcoin to buy some ETH? Yeah, so one crypto to another is actually a taxable event. Even though there isn't any cash that comes out of the exchange, it's still treated as if the first crypto was sold and then the, for cash, for instance, and then that cash was used to buy the second. So whatever the fair market value is at that time, that is going to be the sales price. And then you've got a gain or loss depending on what you initially bought it for and what it was sold for or what it was exchanged for at that time. And then when you sell crypto to fiat, that one seems pretty straightforward to me, but could you quickly walk through that? Yeah, so same idea. With fiat, though, you at least know exactly the fair market value. You only got the cash, right? You know how much that is. So it's an easier calculation to come about, but it's a taxable event nonetheless. And the gain or loss is this calculated the same way. It's whatever you paid for that crypto is your cost basis. And then what the amount of fiat you receive is the sales price. And the difference between those two are your gain or loss. But in the U.S., what also makes it a little bit more complex is there are different types of capital gains. There's short-term and long-term. Short-term occurs when that sale occurs in less than a year, so you held it for less than a year, and long-term is greater than a year. Why is this important? Well, it's one of the best tax strategies that exists in the U.S. for crypto, which is hold longer than a year, because then your tax rate is typically about half the tax rate of a short-term sale. Short-term sales are your ordinary tax rate, which vary from zero to 37%. Long-term are zero, 15, or on the high end, 20%. But most taxpayers pay 15% on long-term gains, which is a pretty favorable tax rate if you really think about it. So it's important to know the distinction between long-term versus short-term capital gains. And if there was one thing I learned in law school, it was you should always talk to a tax expert before you plan to do anything, because it is amazing the differences in what you'll pay depending on how you operate and how the transactions are structured. Let's, I think these will start to increase a little bit in complexity. I'd love to hear what it works when you, how it works when you sell NFTs for crypto, but you don't plan to cash that crypto out to feet. That doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't matter. Anytime you go from crypto to crypto, NFT to crypto, even though there's no fiat, there's still a gain or loss, depending on the fair market value at that time. So no, unfortunately, still the same. And so and that would be so for example, if you sold an NFT for say, 50 ETH, you would pay tax based on 
the income of what that 50 ETH is worth in, say, U.S. dollars if you're in the U.S. Of Correct. And then whatever you paid for that NFT initially is your cost basis, and that'll help reduce the amount of gain. But say you bought it for $1,000 or the equivalent of $1,000 of ETH, and then when you sold it, it was 50000 then you'd have a $49,000 gain. And it's so much math because you can, depending on how much ETH you have, there are different cost bases for the ETH. How do you think about determining the cost basis when you have this a token that's pretty much fungible and you might have been intermixing ETH you got back in 2014 with ETH you purchased recently? So when you go to sell that ETH or any fungible token, typically what we'll use is FIFO or first in, first out, which means the oldest units of that token are the ones that are sold first using the cost basis from that time and using the dates that it was acquired. So we'd start with the oldest and then work our way forward, which is FIFO. In some situations, you can do what the IRS refers to as a specific identification in which you actually look at lots that were sold and treat them based on how it actually occurred. For instance, maybe you have a wallet that holds ETH that you bought last month, and then another wallet that holds ETH that you bought a year ago, and you actually choose which one you pull the ETH from and you sell. That is typically a specific identification. And then we can look to what were those prices and trace it that way. So a lot of math and a lot of going through the blockchain, but it's possible. It's possible and it's definitely worth it for many people, just given the different cost bases, depending on when you were involved. And I could see the argument from a non-fungible perspective in that, say you mint, you bought some ETH during the initial ICO. Right, that might be even worth more to you than that you bought last month, even though technically it's still one ETH or two ETH. So I could see the argument there for doing that. When you stake crypto with a delegate, could you describe a bit about what the tax consequences there? So say you have some ETH, but then you delegate it to someone who is staking it on your behalf. Are there tax consequences even though you're not selling that crypto? So it will depend on the actual mechanics of the delegation. Sometimes they'll give you another token in exchange. And that, in some cases, is a taxable event. And that's one area that we wish also the IRS would give us some clarity on, which is when you have tokens that indicate your ownership of something, is that a new token? But I digress. But in, in different situations, different treatment, but in most it's treated not as a taxable event when you make that contribution or transfer into the validator. It's basically like a loan or a deposit or a self-transfer, depending on the facts. Uh, but then when you receive the, war the rewards, then those are income to you. And if you subsequently take out your ETH or whatever the token is from the validator, then that also not a taxable event unless you got more. But it's basically a temporary deposit. Right. Okay. That's a good way to think of it. So then when you receive those rewards, that would be considered income and that would be marked to market and you would owe, you would have a taxable gain depending on the price at that time. You got it. Dang. You really <laughs> capture everything. <laughs> that's the IRS. That's the federal yep. government. Yep. So then when it comes to airdrops, just to start with airdropped crypto. So you have your wallet gets airdrop crypto, assuming we, we've spoken a little bit about how the rules would apply there. But what if it's a wallet that you maybe set up and never touched and don't plan on touching? And I'm just thinking 
hypothetically, and you could skip this one if you like, but if there's a wallet that people set up, forgot they'd set it up, but it was airdropped because everyone in this protocol was airdropped it and they didn't touch it. But then say three years later, they realize, oh shoot, I was airdropped $20,000 worth of X token on that date. What would you, like, how do you sort out situations like that? So a couple options. If the client or the taxpayer takes the position that they never will touch that wallet and that it was basically abandoned back then, then there could be an argument that it shouldn't be picked up as income and it's basically done, it's gone. Now, going back to my story about home run baseballs, the IRS is generally pretty against such a treatment, but there's arguments that it could be abandoned at that time. However, in most situations, if you come to find out now that you had a wallet a few years back that had 20000 or whatever the amount is in airdrops, in many situations, we would suggest filing an amendment and picking up that income. Because what's bound to happen is that you'll sell the tokens at some point. And then first, the question will arise, what is your gain or loss? And that depends on what did you record as cost basis. But then secondly, was this long term or short short term? And we talked about how one of the easiest and most effective strategies is hold long term. But if you never reported it, never picked it up, how can you take that treatment. So it depends on the situation. I guess that's, you know, the famous words of lawyers. It depends, but it really does. But the options generally are to either not report it and consider it abandoned, amend, or later when you do sell it, pick it all up as a short-term gain, which is equivalent to income, which isn't always desirable. When it comes to donating crypto, So say you buy Bitcoin at a very low price and then you donate it and it's appreciated enormously at the time. How does your charitable donate receipt on your tax return work in that sense? Is it the cost basis? Is it the value? Is it the difference between the two? So also another great tax strategy. If you donate appreciated crypto, also similar with appreciated stock, you can, in most situations, and there are some nuances to, to it, like there are nuances to everything, but in most situations, you can claim the fair market value rather than your cost basis as the charitable deduction. So that is, in some situations, very beneficial. Say, for instance, you were an early purchaser of Ethereum. Maybe you got it at a dollar, and now it's uh, whatever, let's say $1,000. And then you donate that Ethereum. If As long as the 501c3 will take Ethereum, you'll get a deduction for $1,000, and you won't have any gain or loss on that sale. However, if you had donated cash, let's say you converted that Ethereum to cash and donated cash, you would have had a $999 gain, and then you would have had a deduction for $1,000. And not that great, right? Not that great. (laughs) So this is a very effective way to have larger deduction. That said, the IRS a few weeks ago issued a memo that talked about this exactly, which was donations of appreciated crypto. And they said in order to take the deduction, you need to have a qualified appraisal. So Typically, you can look to the price of Ethereum or Bitcoin or whatever on an exchange, and it's fairly readily ascertainable. Assuming it's a token like Ethereum, there's enough liquidity, should be able to figure out what that value is. IRS said not good enough. You need a qualified appraisal. Of course, there's 
requirements for that in order to take the deduction. And they even said that, well, what if at the time you made that, you made that donation, you didn't know that you needed a qualified appraisal? Not good enough. You need a qualified appraisal. In that case, would you retroactively get a qualified appraisal for the value that it would have been at that time? Is that even possible? Correct. I think that is possible. You know, it's a new area. We'll see how this all shakes out. Right. But because the history, the information is there, um, right. I, I do think, you know, it should be possible, even if that appraisal has occurred later, later on, that you could still have it based on that prior date. And we're, there's projects where you can sell your devalued NFTs for a penny. And then you can claim the tax deduction on your capital gains or income, depending on what your profession is. But does, do those work? Could you touch on that? Sure. So with crypto in general, another good tax strategy, especially at year end, is tax loss harvesting. Selling the crypto that you're holding that has unrealized losses so you can use those losses to offset other gains, either in crypto or stocks or to a limited extent other income. With crypto, if you have a token that's dropped a lot in value, most tokens at least, you can jump on an exchange and sell it, usually within minutes. And even if there's low liquidity, you'll just get a lower price. And so it's typically possible. With NFTs, because they're non-fungible, it's a little bit of a different story. Even if you listed your NFTs on OpenSea for a penny or a dollar, you'll have to wait. You may not even get a buyer. Some of these trash projects, they're just dead. No one's buying them. They're sitting there. No one will take them. They won't spend the gas fees. So how do you actually achieve your loss? Say you bought into a project, spent thousands of dollars, now it's dead. How do you get your loss? We talked about how abandonment is kind of a gray area. You know, how do you, with crypto, show you've abandoned it? With a physical item, it's fairly straightforward, right? You can physically abandon something. But with crypto, what do you do? If it's just sitting in your wallet? Does that count? Likely not, right? If it's just sitting there, because what if it increases in value? Then are you going to change your mind? <laughs> so what we would want to see is some sort of affirmative step to actually demonstrate that it has been disposed of, that it has been sold. So sending it to a burn address, selling it for a penny. At least that way it has left your possession. The IRS couldn't argue that you later on have the ability to take it back, especially with services that don't let you buy it back. And it's at least evidence that sale or that transaction occurred. So there isn't any direct guidance on this like many issues, but we do feel that taking a step like selling it to a service that buys it for a penny would be much better than just having it stay in your wallet and say, yeah, I'm taking a loss on it. Right. Actually effectuating the, a transaction or, or something that at least is a, a transaction rather than just giving up on it. Even burning it might be better than that. Well, definitely is better than that. When it comes to stolen crypto, I found this was an interesting one because you can have examples where people are fished and then they lose their NFT, but then it gets flagged. You know, there's all these consequences regarding that. And it could quickly decrease in value to a certain extent, even just like listed price and maybe what it's sold for afterwards. How do tax considerations work in that respect where you could even get it returned to you in, in the future, potentially? Well, if there's some sort of ability to get it back, then there's potential arguments that you haven't actually sold it or disposed of it. Maybe it was a loan, something like that, or even a sham transaction. Right. We've 
had questions come up where people said, well, can I sell it to my buddy for a dollar? And then, you know, a few months later, he'll sell it back to me for a dollar. And, you know, it's on the blockchain. It's clearly done. But there's no economic substance, right? The IRS has this general economic substance doctrine. It's kind of an overarching umbrella that can apply to any transaction. And in general, it says that if there's really nothing behind it, we're not going to treat it as a taxable event. We're not going to give you a benefit from it. So you've got to be careful in those types of situations, especially if you have the ability to get it back. But if there's no, or you haven't actually sold it, the IRS has also said that just a drop in value without taking those additional steps isn't enough. That if you're just holding crypto, price goes down, you don't have any losses. Nothing's actually happened. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure we'll start to see quite interesting cases come up, even when you think of an NFT where if anything, if it points to, if the metadata points to a website or something that stores the image and then that image disappears and there's a huge drop in value, well, you know, you still have the NFT technically, but does it have any value anymore? And I guess maybe that's where the, that transaction approach will come into play. Such an interesting area. Who thought tax could be so? When it comes to lending crypto, and this is an interesting one when you bring in DeFi and you can lend even against your NFT in some cases, but typically you can store ETH or another token on a DeFi protocol in which you're essentially sending it to a smart contract. Are there tax consequences on that transaction itself when you're disposing it to this smart contract, even though there's no owner that's getting title to it or anything? Short answer is it depends. And it's because it depends how the smart contract interacts. But the just because there's not a actual human as the counterparty doesn't negate the substance and whether or not we have a taxable event. Typically, we'll look to see, is this considered like a loan, which is even more interesting given the collapse of Celsius, BlockFi, FTX, and the others, where the courts have said, no, these aren't actually loans, these are investments even though everyone thought they were loans. So interesting to see how that changes things. But if it looks like a loan where you've got a deposit and you see that deposit and it earns interest, then that is typically not a taxable event on deposit and withdrawal. If, on the other hand, you deposit ETH and you get back X ETH, and then that X ETH increases in value, but it doesn't increase in volume, then we likely have a taxable event on deposit. And then when you sell it or exchange it back, then a capital gain or loss. So it really depends on the mechanics of, of how it occurs. That's great to know. And one question I had, there was a case, Nay Oil versus Burnett, about a government takeover and it basically said that net profits earned on a property held in receivership are taxable to the taxpayer in the year that they unconditionally receive the earnings. And if you think of something like staking, where you don't necessarily receive the earnings until you withdraw them. It's being held on your behalf. And in this case, this was in like 1916, I think. <laughs> they said constructive receipt of the profits did not occur because they didn't know that they would actually ever receive the net proceeds. And when you have a case of staking, especially delegated staking, you, you don't know how that could operate. That could always go against you in some cases. And you mentioned bankruptcies and things like that can occur depending on the situation. Is that something that is being considered, discussed, or am I off base? No, this is absolutely something that's being discussed and debated because, for instance, Celsius, you know, BlockFi, all these platforms that people were earning yield, earning rewards, but and now getting tax forms, actually in the last couple of weeks, 
getting tax forms that say you earned this much income. And then you get these forms and you're like, is this crazy? I can't actually, <laughs> they not only took my money, but they're also taxing me on it. And so in a perfect scenario, because we don't actually have the ability to take it out now, we would consider that income is not occurring or no dominion and control. What we feel and many of the practitioners that I've spoken with is that at the time that interest was earned, because it could have been withdrawn at that time, it was not in receivership at that time. It was not in bankruptcy at that time. There was constructive dominion and control at that time that there was an income event then. Just because subsequently it became locked or in bankruptcy, that subsequent event may have a separate tax consideration, but it doesn't change the initial event. Now, you know, that's unfortunate and we're hopeful that maybe the government will step in and say, hey, no, that's, let's make an exception here. And they have in situations in the past. After the Madoff Ponzi scheme, the tax code was revised to allow for greater deductions in those types of scenarios. And after, uh, I think the news has said that FTX is even larger than Madoff. Hopefully there will be some leniency here towards the people that have deposits held at a minimum towards the interest, the rewards earned. Even more beneficial would be the actual claiming of the losses for the underlying principle. Right. And can you claim losses of underlying principle? Well, the case is in a bankruptcy court and something like this, where there, there is still a chance that you'll have that, you'll get a return of the investment there. So the tax code generally allows for the loss to be taken when it is known and complete. Here, we don't seem to have either of those factors met. And although a lot of people think it's lost, just looking at the balance sheets, the funds aren't there, but it's not known and it doesn't look like it may be complete. There's been even recent discussion about Celsius, how some of the CEL tokens may have some value. So because of that, we're suggesting to our clients that it's too early. And in general, because of that, if you had deposits on one of these platforms, it may make sense to file an extension. In the US, the tax return deadline is in April, but you can file a six month extension to file. We're crossing our fingers that there'll be a change. There's some clarity in that time. So it may make sense not to file now if you're one of those users, but instead get yourself some additional time and hope that there's a change. Okay. Okay. That's very good to know. And with regard to the taxes is twofold. So when you send crypto to another wallet, depending on the platform, you'll pay gas fees. How, how do gas fees factor into the tax of the tax equation that, that you work at the end of the year? Would that be just considered an expense? So it depends on where and how the gas fee is incurred. And in recent times, the gas fees can be pretty significant. The way that we treat it, and again, this is one of those issues, there's no guidance, right? We talked in the beginning of this podcast about how we've got to create these principles. And this is a lot of exactly what we do as a firm, right? We've got to go through these different scenarios figure out how to have it apply. So nothing in the code about gas fees, right? The word gas is not considered the same thing in, in the tax code. The way that we treat it is that if gas is incurred with a purchase or on a purchase, then that fee is applied or added to cost basis. So say you spent 0.9 ETH on an NFT, but then there is 0.1 ETH in gas, we would say your cost basis on that NFT is one. Money. Most of this tax software doesn't actually do that for you, unfortunately. 
Um, but then let's take it a step further. Let's say you transferred that NFT from your MetaMask wallet to your ledger and you had a 0.1 gas fee. That gas fee we don't typically add to cost basis. We treat it like a spend. You transfer, you, you spent money on having it moved. The way that I often think about it is imagine that instead of an NFT, it was a boat. You had a boat in one lake and you want to move it to another. That's not a tax deduction. You just wanted to move it to, to another lake. On the other hand, when you sell that boat, there may be a fee on sale. Similarly, sell that NFT, there might be a fee on sale. That fee will use to reduce your sales price. And so you do get the tax benefits, at least on the purchase and the sale, as long as you calculate the gas fees, but just transfers between wallet to wallet. We at least don't think that there's an argument for a deduction there. Thank you for that. And I find it so helpful to think about the physical world situations. People always talk about how code is law when they hack a protocol. To me, it's akin to saying if you break into a bank and steal the money, well, you were able to do it. So, you know, that shouldn't be illegal. Right. It's a bit ironic. And when you do, I love that example of bringing the boat to another lake. It's like, of course, that's not some taxable deduction that, that you can bring in. So, I think you've given some really good examples of best practices when it comes to tax planning and things to just be mindful of when you are involved in the crypto space. Could you give a brief rundown on the things that you find are most important for people in the crypto space to keep in mind when planning how to navigate the crypto space from a tax perspective? Sure. So tax, although it's not typically thought of as one of the most sexy or attractive topics in crypto. If you're a crypto investor or trader, it is one of the most certain aspects of the investment strategy. And taxes can be you know, up to 40 or add in state, can be up to 50%. And some of the ways to best minimize your taxes are the simplest. Yet in order to do them, you need to have current records and very accurate and complete records. And that is one of the biggest difficulties that we've seen people have, especially when they use many exchanges, many wallets, is number one, getting all the data. In the last year, with the collapse of these different exchanges, we see people now struggling to get data that should be readily available or was in the past. So one of the suggestions that I have is make sure that you're on a periodic basis retrieving all of your data from different exchanges. And if you use multiple wallets, write down your addresses, keep track of it. The data will actually help you put it all together. It'll help with tax planning as well. And at the end of the day, the IRS is getting better and better at doing all of this tracking and they're getting more information. Going back again to these bankruptcies, this information is public. All the, the creditors are public. And it would be foolish to think the IRS isn't looking at this information saying who is in this list that hasn't reported. So getting all the data, but then also just making sure that you report accurately, fully. That's a great reminder. And I think it's an area where you can't plead ignorance. You, you have to go through it properly and you don't want to be thinking five years down the road, worried about whether or not that NFT that you were airdropped and didn't report will cause you any potential issues with the IRS. And you had a good thread on jail time and whether, you know, steps that the IRS, and I think this was actually from the Gordon Law account. If you don't report crypto to the IRS, will you be automatically thrown in jail? And the short answer is no, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're off the hook. And you gave a list of some other actions the IRS can take, and I'll link that in the show notes. But I'd love to just quickly touch on your Twitter handle. So for those who want to follow Andrew himself, it's at accounting. 
which has got must have been an expensive handle to get. But I'd love to know how did you? Is there a story behind how you got that handle? You don't have to tell me the price, but just curious to see how that was possible. Oh, I wish there was a more exciting story behind it. But actually, one of my clients was very early on Twitter and had a couple of these handles, and we had done some good work for him, and he gave it to me as a present. That's very cool. That is a good story. I like that. Now, um, since then, I'm sure, you know, he probably thinks differently. It's been several years. But yeah, it's I'm very proud and happy to be honored with the accounting handle. It is pretty cool. It's almost like accounting.com. I think we're starting to see the shift and there's the .eth names and everything now too. It'll be interesting to see what emerges as the next .com. In terms of projects and projects in the crypto space, are there any that you're excited about or any things that we can do with crypto? It could be from a tax perspective that that makes you bullish on the future of crypto or even just society in general for adopting some systems for better efficiency, improved transactions and trust. Yeah. So Bitcoin and Ethereum, I'm kind of maximalist on them. Being in the industry, as long as I have, there have been many projects that have come and gone, but Ethereum specifically moving to proof of stake, proof of work, I think is a very momentous occasion and will define the future of that project. At the same time, I do think smart contracts, Ethereum overall, just have massive use cases in many different areas, especially tax. I am confident that in the next 10 years, the tax industry is going to change considerably. It needs to. The way the tax returns are paired, it's changed very little. There's no reason that tax forms are mailed physically and don't have simple XML tags. We can't all be imported digitally. So things need to change. And I think the blockchain is going to be instrumental in doing so. So it's kind of the connection of all of my interests, but I'm excited to see what happens with tax and accounting specifically in the future. I agree. I think it will be interesting to see, especially when you can create a system that could potentially remit payments when immediately when they're made, or you could even divert it to a certain wallet and store it. There, there's so many exciting things that can be done as painful as taxes it is i'm sure it's fun for you just to see the emergence of this technology and thinking of ways it can be combined with paying taxes and organizing things in that manner yeah absolutely what was it that first clicked to you when it came to bitcoin i can imagine from a business perspective especially given your background you could see the opportunities here but it is something we've seen people in the traditional industries especially in 2014 I mean, now I think it's much more acceptable to go into this. Was it a difficult thing for you to do to bring this into your practice or was it an obvious next step? At first, you know, I remember even when Ethereum was a dollar and the two dollars and in the halls of the firm, we would all scream out, hey, you know, Ethereum's two bucks. And that was because at that time we really didn't know where it was going to go. What did this all mean? But I think what we started to see is that it had legs and it was a technology that was here to stay because there were in those early days, Bitcoin and Ethereum specifically, very straightforward use cases. Right. Bitcoin allowed the settlement of funds very quickly across borders at any time. Ethereum, the introduction of a smart contract. So, you know, we just looked at those underlying technologies. And at first, you know, there's certainly concerns and what is this and what does it mean? But as we dove in, you know, our firm was very excited and became very involved. 
It would be great to see. I don't know if you've seen The Last Dance where they had the documentary of the Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan in his last season there. It would be great to have something similar to the Gordon Law Group back in 2014 and see <laughs> what that was like when Ethereum went to $2. And then it's amazing <laughs> to think back at how much has changed since then. Yeah. Times have changed in a lot of ways. In some ways, not as much. But yeah, it's great to see the industry grow so much over time, but also some regulatory clarity, especially in taxes. And a lot of news, especially recently about enforcement against crypto companies in the US, and it's 2023. But in the tax space, it's been an area that's been developing actually since 2014. And in Canada in 2013, the CRA said that tax rules applied to Bitcoin. How has that developed in the US? What was the first pronouncement by the IRS? Maybe it was another regulatory body, but what did those early stages look like? Yeah, so it was actually in 2014. It was a notice, notice number 2014-21. And at that time, the IRS said cryptocurrency was to be treated and taxed as property and not as a currency. And so leading up to that, there was a lot of discussion and debate. Is crypto a currency? Should it be treated like the US dollars or other currencies? Or is it more akin to property, things like stock or things like hard assets? Or intangible assets. And the IRS made the determination, which then changed really everything thereafter, and said that, hey, it is property. It's going to be taxed like property, and all the same rules that apply to in general will apply to crypto. And from that point, I guess it is relatively straightforward then how to go at it from a tax perspective. At least it might seem if you have something like Bitcoin, but then you can quickly get into, well, how does mining work and what are you actually getting at that stage? And we'll get into more details about different transactions and misreported transactions in crypto. But I'd love to learn a bit more about the Gordon Law Group. What did that, what did the early years look like? So you mentioned walking through the hallways, right? Like depending on the prices, I'm sure there weren't always good days too. There, there were days where things went down quite a bit. But what was it like for you personally building up a legal practice like that? Well, our big focus is taxes and tax law specifically. And in the area of crypto, even today, there are no guidebooks, there's no textbooks, mm. there's no manuals, there's no best practices. Um, and so we had to develop a couple of things. One, what is our legal library on different crypto issues? Because in 2014, the IRS in a fairly brief document, a few pages said, crypto is a property. All right, great. But now we've got to apply a brand new technology where things like staking, hard forks, airdrops, these wonky words that don't exist in the tax code, we've got to apply this new technology to these old principles. Uh, and so that even today is something that we still have challenges doing. But over the years, we've built up our legal library. What do we think the tax treatment of certain types of transactions are? Liquidity pools, you know, all different things and building that, but also building the processes. How do you actually reconcile a crypto tax form? How do you generate that in a way that you can show an auditor if, the, if it occurred, how those numbers were determined? And what is just that process overall from data collection to end deliverables? Tax returns are an industry that has existed for what, 100 years. And so there are a lot of best practices. There's a lot of ways that things have developed. And there's also a lot of guides. You Google a lot and get a lot of tax answers. Um, but crypto, that those two things didn't really exist. And so over the last 
nine years, we've worked tirelessly to develop and refine those. You guys have some incredible resources on your website. I recommend people check out and I'll put some links in the show notes as well, just with common questions and guidebooks regarding crypto taxes. Could you describe the services Gordon Law Group offers when it comes to the tax side of crypto? Sure. So the largest service offering is to generate crypto tax forms for crypto tax traders and investors. And so if you are trading on one or more exchanges or even just having wallets that are able to buy or sell, you have taxable events. And we'll talk more about what those taxable events are. But it is quite difficult to actually come up with a gain and loss report, especially if you have several transactions across different platforms or exchanges. And so we'll work with our clients to get all that data and generate the forms that are needed so that either you or your CPA can add them to your tax return, or we also do full tax return preparation as well. So we'll calculate all the crypto gain losses and do the tax returns, or we can just do part. But what makes us, I would say, unique as a firm is we don't just stop there. We also have attorneys that handle crypto tax audits on a regular basis. Very fortunately, I would say this has not been our clients. Statistically, we have results in terms of our clients not being audited, but every day people come to us that are under audit, and then we represent them in those audits. And I think this is very valuable because we're able to see what can go wrong, what are the trends of IRS audits, what is the IRS looking for, and then take those tips, apply them to the compliance side, and make sure that we're taking those lessons to the benefit of our clients as well. Thank you for that background. And I can imagine there can be some busy times, but thinking back on, on when you, you founded it, and I believe that was in 2012 to where it is today. I mean, hats off to you for really building an incredible group. And I can't even imagine how much work went into it. I'd love to know how the group has changed over time. What learnings that you've experienced going out in, on your own at that stage and then building up a team and really what most people consider high-end firm. Yeah, so when I started 10 years ago, it was just myself and shortly thereafter hired a, another attorney. But over the years, we've grown considerably. We now have a team around 35 employees or so. And our team now is lean, highly focused, and very efficient, I would say. We've, we really focus on processes, making sure that we can take a client through a customer experience, a customer journey that is consistent and also at a high level, especially when we're now servicing, we'll likely be almost a thousand crypto clients this year. So to go from volume that I can take on just myself to then being able to do that at scale, but also deliver very high quality service. And that's something that we're very focused on. Google reviews, for instance, we've got five stars. And while that may sound easy in a service business, it's actually quite hard to get clients to write nice things about you on the internet, but we've been successful in that. So it's been a journey. It's been a great experience. I love personally the business of law, and this has been a great way that I can combine personal interest, technology, crypto in general, and then also business. And so it's been a lot of fun, but also at times very challenging. And I know before you started this, you worked as a law clerk at the IRS. Do you think you, you would have been confident starting the firm without that experience? Or did that experience and your work at PwC before then, it gave you the confidence to do that? Because I know people in their early stages, it can be quite a daunting thing to do. 
Yeah, great question. So I started the firm right out of law school. I was sworn in and basically the next day I had a month-to-month office and I jumped right in. Part of the reason was necessity. I had clerked at the IRS during my 3L year and then they had a hiring freeze. So I thought, you know, let's give this a shot and see if I can get some business. And if not, then I can hopefully go back to the IRS. Um, But it was definitely a journey and one that I would say as a new attorney, it is a lot of learning very quickly, but I think that's the funnest part. As I reflect on the last 10 years, it's typically the, the beginning that is most memorable, especially some of the struggles. And in terms of preparation or confidence, I think if you're starting out, you shouldn't be overly confident, despite your experiences. Even if you were at a prosecutor's office or the IRS or, or wherever, there's always more things to learn. That said, it did help me have a baseline of knowledge and also just, I would say, the in some ways, the confidence to be able to go against the IRS and know that mm-hmm. they're not the big bad wolf, but they're humans on the other end. And a lot of those people were people that even to today that I maintain relationships with. So I think humanizing them allowed me to realize that, hey, even if I mess up or say the wrong thing, it'll be okay. But one of the things that I did early on after six months was I hired a more experienced attorney that had a few more years of experience and he could fill the knowledge gaps that I had. Right. And when you say hired, was it come and work with me and we'll coordinate, like bring your book of business? No. (laughs) I was very fortunate. As I mentioned, I started out right away and I was living in my parents' basement. I, when I graduated law school, during law school, a nice apartment, but graduated law school, <laughs> no, no job, then it's time to go back to the parents' basement. So I was working in my parents' basement and I was basically taking my profit and reinvesting in the business, in advertising, and at that point, staff. So he was a full-time employee. He was more experienced, older than me, but my main responsibility was bring in the business and the business of law generally, whereas he was then able to help do a lot of the work because he had at that point several years of experience doing exactly what I needed, which was a tax controversy. And so what were some things that you were doing at that stage to bring in? And then we'll get to the tax, I promise, but I am curious. What were some things that you did in those early stages that that let you bring in business considering what was a lack of experience compared to some more gray-haired lawyers? So my education and experience was in tax, master's in accounting, CPA. That was my focus. At the same time, I had an interest in technology. And so what I sought to do early on was use the internet to advertise because other than life and death, taxes is one of the only certainties. And at the same time, I knew there's a lot of people in high-tech industries that didn't necessarily have a strong tax preparer or or a tax advisor to work with. So early on, I tried to identify industries and advertise on the internet, create content for those industries specifically. But believe it or not, my first, I want to say two, three clients were from Craigslist. Just putting posts on Craigslist saying, do you have a tax issue? I can help. And that was what got me enough money to pay my first month's rent. That's incredible. I love it. It speaks to the hustle. I can imagine what was a taxing, not to use the pun, but like a taxing period for you, but I'm sure such a rewarding one and such a great learning experience too. So last question for you, Andrew, and it's a two-parter and you can feel free to answer one or answer both. But the first part is habits. And I find we are a collection of our habits. If you wake up early every day, if you 
drink every day, like regardless of what you do every day, that sort of defines your life. Are there any habits that have you, have helped you cultivate a successful career or that you've intentionally instilled? And then the second question is, what advice were you given early in your career that shaped who you have become? Or what advice would you give yourself if you could go back? So I could repeat the first one if you need to, or just let you tackle them. Sure. So first, in terms of habits, I agree with you. You are a combination of the things that you do on a regular basis. And so I'm very busy all day, every day. And so trying to have defined times to do certain things, a personal I guess, hobby, which I guess is a habit, is working out. It's something that I've done for many years and have always found time. I remember in law school, there our law school was a couple blocks from my gym. I remember be people studying for finals and I'd leave for a couple hours, go to the gym and say, how could you have done that? And you got a final tomorrow. It'll be okay. Yeah. But you know, I think having that break and especially a place to think and reflect on a lot of the craziness of the day, back-to-back meetings, this, that all day, but just having time to slow things down. In some ways, it's my form of meditation. And I've found that to be very powerful over the years, just to be able to reflect, to think back. Similarly, I'm a big fan of Ray Dalio, his book, Principles. I try to define principles in many of the things that I do. And even as a firm and as a leader, you know, as I make decisions firm-wide, I try to communicate the principles and what led to those decisions so that we have playbooks and we know how we address certain things as they occur. So I found that to be those both to be very helpful, I guess, habits, if you'd consider them those. So early on, I was given some encouragement to just do it, I guess, probably in different words, but to take the leap and, you know, starting my own firm, but also taking on large cases. We're very fortunate over the years to have cases that were out of our wheelhouse or typically larger than what we would have taken on. And we've rose to the challenge and taken on some of the largest adversaries, be it the IRS, FTC or other branches of the federal government and succeeded. And so taking on, taking risks, diving in, taking the chance, but then also surrounding yourself with the best people in the field when those opportunities arise and so that you're not taking it on just on your own. So as a, when I just started the law practice, I was fortunate that one of my, I guess fortunate or disfortunate, one of my high school friends was sued by the FTC needed representation. I don't know how to defend an FTC case. <laughs> There's not many people in the U.S. that do, yet he had the funds, wanted to retain me. And so I found another attorney in Chicago that was very experienced with them, with FTC cases. And I said to him, I'll do the most of the work. You teach me how. Tell me what to do. I'll follow your lead. I'll do most of the work. I'll give you the money. And we did that, I want to say, twice. And the third time I was an expert. I say that jokingly, right? But the third time, right, I was able to take it on. So rising to the challenge, but then also finding the resources, taking the risk, and not always taking on the immediate monetary gain with a longer term plan. I love it. I think that's a great spot to end it, Andrew. That was a really inspiring and informative conversation and a funny one at times, just thinking about how the tax rules have really thought of everything. So thank you for taking the time. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Well, thank you very much. It was a great conversation and uh, happy to come back anytime.
Thank you. And for everyone listening, they can find Andrew, as I mentioned, at accounting. Yes, he has that handle on Twitter. We'll link in the show notes all the ways to reach Andrew as well. So thank you, Andrew. Thank you.